0: san marcos city podcast you're listening to san marcos city podcast we'll be bringing you all there is to know about everything we have to offer in the city of san marcos
1: hey san marcos california your city has a podcast and here it is for more information please check us out at san marcos.net that's san-marcos.net and all the usual social media sites Hi, this is Jack Griffin, City Manager here at the City of San Marcos. Welcome to the latest installment of the San Marcos City Podcast. Um, this is going to be a really fun podcast for me. I hope it is for you too. I'm going to depart from the usual city business stuff. So I hope that's okay, but I, I do like to do that every once in a while just to sort of change things up. Um, and I'm sort of going to indulge my, um, my history nerd uh, element of myself. and I'm going to be joined in a few minutes by Michael Elsey. Uh, Michael is the director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. Um, so, uh, in case you didn't know it, the, uh, the the Nixon Library is about ninety minutes north of us, up in the city of Yorba Linda, in Orange County. Um, I went and visited it a few years back, and just found it to be um, just fascinating. Um, Um, I'll get into, uh, some of the stuff that's in the library and obviously how the whole library system works, uh, without getting into all of the, the, the politics and the viewpoints of, of, of president Nixon or any other president for that matter. Um, but it's just a, it's a, it's a fascinating place. Um, and when you, when you go and you, you sort of realize that, um, the five and a half years or so that, uh, president Nixon was in office were incredibly, um, momentous and eventful years between, uh, the Vietnam war and the, you know, ramping that down and the moon landing and going to China. And anyway, it's just, um, it's, it's an amazing resource that it's on San Marcos doorstep. So there's a connection to San Marcos if we, we can make one. Um, but, um, I've, uh, I've, I've had the fortunate uh, benefit of, uh, of visiting three of the presidential libraries. I've been to the Reagan Library a couple of times up in Simi Valley. Um, and, you know, that it, it just the majestic beauty of being up on top of that mountain is worth that trip aside from that amazing library. And I've also been to the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm quite the, the Winston Churchill um, fan uh, and – There's just uh, an amazing exhibit, or at least there was then. I'm assuming it was a permanent exhibit, though I don't don't know that for sure, at the Truman Library. Um, But it's just fantastic. So um, uh, I'll I'll give you a little bit of uh, Mr. Elsie's background before uh, he jumps on. Um, So he was appointed um, by the Archivist of the United States as the Director of the Richard Nixon Library and Museum in January of 2015, um, the library, I'm not sure if it right when he started, but uh, certainly sur- shortly thereafter, uh, was going through some major renovations uh, under you know, his watch. Um, and the library reopened in October of 16 with some significant uh, upgrades and improvements, um, both to the, to the information collection as well as the gallery space. Um, it really is a very cool location. Um, you know, it's an urbanized location, so it's, a sm- it's not that large of a site. Um, so you can certainly uh, go up and do, uh, do it in a, in a fairly, you know, you, you, can, you can see a lot up there in a few hours. And so I highly recommend the trip. Uh, in case you were curious, um, there are 13 uh, brick-and-mortar presidential libraries in the country. Um, I'll just run them through and where they're at. So I think uh, as I look at the list, it sounds like a great road trip. I'm not sure you could catch them all in one trip, but um, they're starting with Herbert Hoover at West Branch, Iowa, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in Hyde Park, New York, the Harry Truman Library I mentioned in Independence, Missouri, Dwight D. Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas, JFK up uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, Lyndon Johnson in Austin, Texas, Gerald Ford in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and there's a separate General Ford Presidential Um, center, I think, in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan as well. Uh, Jimmy Carter in Atlanta, Georgia, Ronald Reagan, Simi Valley, California, George Bush in West College Station, Texas, and Bill Clinton in Little Rock, Arkansas, and the George W. Bush, uh, the the most recent uh, constructed brick-and-mortar library in Dallas, Texas. Um, I don't think there's a plans for uh, Barack Obama or Donald Trump library. Uh, They both have a digital presence on, on the um, national archives website and are considered the 14th and 15th libraries. Um, uh, President Obama does intend to construct uh, what's called the Obama presidential center, but I don't think at this point in time it's expected to be a privately owned or it it, it is expected. I'm sorry, to be a privately owned and operated facility, not turned over over to the National Archives, uh, like the other uh, 13 brick-and-mortar libraries are. Um, so anyway, I hope you find um, this in educational. I know I'm going to learn a ton about the whole library, presidential library system, um, and hopefully we'll get some cool insights as to what uh, is available at the Nixon Library and maybe some other places as well. So um, I hope you uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast, and I'm happy to welcome Michael Elzey. So, Michael, thanks very much for uh, being willing to be on the City Podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Jack. It's great to meet you. Um, so uh, before we talk about the library and all that sort of stuff, why don't you tell us a little about yourself, uh, your background, how you got to be the one of the 13 people who are directors of a presidential library. And I'm, I'm sure really curious about what the process of that selection process is like.
0: Well, that is actually a good story because uh, I am a pretty unique um, library director, uh, if you look across the system. But to take you back a bit, uh, I was raised by, uh, a milita- in a military family. My dad was one of those uh, members of the greatest generation who joined the Navy and was a pilot uh, after Pearl Harbor. And he, so he was a, a career naval aviator, flew in Korea during Vietnam, World War II, uh, that type of thing. So I was very privileged to, to be raised uh, by a mom and dad who took good care of me, and, and we traveled a lot. And I ended up in the West Coast, um, Coronado, San Diego, then San Jose. And uh, went to high school there um, after high school, went in the Marine Corps, spent uh, four years in the Marine Corps and, and uh, Richard Nixon was my commander in chief. Uh, and uh, so that kind of began a story that I did not know would come full circle for decades to come. Um, and he resigned while I was in the, in the service okay. too. So, so there, so it was uh, front of mind in many ways. I, I went on to finish college, uh, spent some time in the, in the corporate sector entered public service in 1991, and I've been in public service ever since. Um, I relocated to Southern California in 2008 to take over a position of redeveloping uh, a military installation in Orange County that had closed uh, Marine Corps Air Station El Toro. I served uh, there uh, for the city of Irvine for seven years. Um, And in 2012, some things changed with the elections, with who my boss was, how it was organized, things like that, and and. It, it, I began to look for uh, my next opportunity. And uh, interestingly enough, um, I would just look every once in a while. And so I came across this position of president and CEO of the Richard Nixon Foundation. And of course I didn't know much about it uh, at all in terms of how it was organized or where it was located or anything. Um, but I'm a, I fancy myself a political scientist. I'm interested in history uh, as are you. And so I took this uh, job description this position description i put it on my desk and every once in a while when i'd have a bad day i'd look at that position description again <laughs> and then and so one day i finally uh called the recruiter and i asked him about the uh, to tell me more about the position he said well thanks for your interest but we're going to be announcing uh our selection this friday and so i had waited too long okay but uh, what happened was uh, i looked for that announcement i looked for that uh That story in the register, and and it was a big expose on the Richard Nixon Library and the history of the organizational structure and how it all worked. And I realized that the president and CEO was uh, the head of the nonprofit operation that was a public-private partner with the federal government, the National Archives and Records Administration. So I looked into that side because I was in a government guy. So I looked into the government side of it and found out that there'd been a vacancy at the director level for more than three years. Wow. So I looked into it. I cold called Washington DC. I said, what's going on there? And they said, Oh, we're, you know, we're in the process of going out to a search firm, uh, that type of thing, you know, just keep an eye on things, keep an eye on things. And so, I get an email back saying we've decided not to go submit some materials. And so I looked on the website for national archives and there was no posting for Richard Nixon, but there was for Truman and Clinton. Okay. (laughs) So, so I, I I looked at those and I just changed the names up and, and, uh, and, and, and tapered my application package to those announcements. And I submitted a big package. I, I remember I put together a lot of stuff, because I got pretty serious about this. And so I actually FedExed a package back to Washington, D.C. Sometime later, I got a call um, from the director of the presidential library system. Uh, That went pretty well. I got invited back. I went back, interviewed in a panel, uh, got invited back for dinner with the archivist, uh, and then uh, finally met with the the new president and CEO of the foundation, the chairman, and the two Nixon daughters. Okay, and so they gave the thumbs up. All right, so you that's know,
1: important it, to get the family's it, thumbs it, up. It,
0: it was important, and and uh, it w- they didn't have a veto, but they had they had suggested to the archivist on a time or two before that uh, they that they weren't very impressed. Okay, uh, so so they gave me the thumbs up. I took the position. I went in, and and the whole place was a mess. To be honest with you, okay. it was uh, had been without a leader for more than three years, as I said, and so. I wasn't a popular choice among historians and archivists and uh, the archivist uh, took a, a real beating and, and I used to interview with uh, newspapers who would come in and ask me, uh, you know, does it matter to me that people out there are griping about who the archivist selected? And, and I said, you know, basically if you want to find out why the archivist selected me, talk to the archivist. Right. Uh, I happened to know that the archivist was looking for a public leader, uh, somebody who had led Uh, public organizations who was going to be able to come in and address the workplace culture and and that type of thing and and grab a hold of that. And I had development experience. And so there was a project just getting underway. And so uh, I I came in and I was able to work with the foundation, both on an executive level, a diplomatic level, but also a technical level of getting the the new uh, renovated gallery, permanent galleries done. And so we started doing that in early 15 and, we opened up in October of 2016.
1: So you so, came right into a construction project, basically. right into
0: a, r- right into the early part of the design, and that's important because Hero was a new guy. I knew a little bit about uh, construction, of course, and I knew a little bit about history. and, and Nixon was my commander in chief, and I, so I got kind of really into it. You know, I really, but I also was not interested in and BSing anybody about who Richard Nixon was. So, and the national archives stands behind that. They want you to be the truth teller and they want, they want their libraries to represent what actually occurred warts and all. And, and so I was able to take that, uh, that support that I knew I had from, from DC and I was able to inject that into the relationship with the foundation and persuade them to tone it down a little bit. You know, this isn't about polishing the Nixon's legacy. This is about telling the truth and then letting people decide what they think about that truth. And so to be honest with you, we were a, we were a forward leaning library because I brought on four independent historians that I found from across the country who reviewed every single word of the script of the new galleries. And they eventually they gave the thumbs up on every single word of that script, all for independence. And so that's, we were the only library to have done that the foundation bought off on it. And I tell you, it's one of the greatest things about the new galleries and the storytelling that goes on there is that I know for a fact that it is true. Uh, It is a true representation of who this man was. He was a very consequential, complicated, flawed individual um, that did great things. He was a true Patriot and he did great things for the country. And then he got himself in trouble and uh, went away for a while. And he came back and became an advisor to future presidents and he wrote nine books. And and so, so it's very interesting story. But the, the question about how I got the job, uh, I think I, I, Beat that one to death, <laughs> uh, but but it was it's the appointment of a
1: lifetime. I tell you. Well, that's and you know and, and I'm glad you brought that up because I know when I visited it and I, and I mentioned before we started that one of the things that I took away from both the Nixon Library and the Reagan Library was the straightforward way the galleries and the exhibits approached the most controversial parts of the presidencies, yeah. um, and I didn't feel like I was being pushed one way or the other. To I think I was like here's. Here's the facts, you decide kind of a, exactly. kind of approach, and I really appreciated that.
0: Well, I don't know if you had a chance to see the orientation film, but there mm-hmm. was a lot of uh, debate, uh, a lot of negotiation about whether or not we were going to introduce the orientation film the way we did. We started out because the orientation film is the beginning of the entire experience of looking at the permanent gallery, So you, you, and it's even designed that way physically. So you go into the orientation film, view the film, exit the door, and there's the permanent gallery right there, which starts with the 1960s. And so, but that orientation film was specifically uh, designed and crafted to introduce Watergate right up front. And so that was not very popular among uh, several uh, former Nixon staffers, and even uh, some of the family was a bit concerned about that as perhaps being too aggressive of an approach. <laughs> but we really liked it because we wanted to show unequivocally upfront that we're going to tell the story the way, the way it occurred. And who is the man known? What is the man known for most Watergate? Sure. Uh, being the only president to have resigned. So, uh, so people walk in, they see that. And then the balance of the 13 minute film tells the broader story of who he was. And so by the time you leave, sure, you picked up the Watergate thing, but you're kind of scratching your head. Wow. This guy did a lot of stuff. I can't wait to look at uh, what's going on in the permanent galleries.
1: That's great. So I, I'm in terms of the, the library itself, it was a private library, my understanding, for quite a while. I know there were some issues with the family and what have you. Um, and then it became a public, it, or turned over to the federal government in the late 2000s. It's, it's, um, so how do you know how long it was like a private library and was it open to the public in, in its sort of a pre-public sector phase?
0: It was dedicated by uh, Richard Nixon himself in 1990 okay. as the Richard Nixon library and birthplace. Okay. Uh, as you know, his birthplace right. is there. And then later on they were, they were both Mr. And Mrs. Nixon were buried there on the site in 1990. It opened up as a private uh, organization, private entity, private library, and operated that way until 2007 when the presidential library uh, administered by the national archives opened. Okay. And a lot happened in between. Uh, because of Watergate, because of the, the uh, lawsuits and the back and forth about the records for President Nixon, um, the records for Nixon were not allowed to go more than 50 miles from Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. Uh for, Until everything got resolved. Everything got resolved in 2004, okay. essentially. And that's when uh, the, the Congress um, authorized, uh, through a new regulation, they authorized the release of these records, and they authorized the creation of a presidential library okay. as a part of the national archives system. Okay. So Nixon's live presidential library was not sequentially among where it should have been. Oh, and, okay. And it and came the, in. It, yeah, obviously it, it came it in. It kind of came later. in after. Sure. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, right around after the Bush library, Bush 43. So, um, so then uh, they, there was a lot of back and forth, back and forth. And, and actually, uh, the presidential library and birthplace and the foundation uh, was intrigued by becoming a presidential library because they were a private entity struggling a bit with revenue, that type of thing. Sure. And the, the federal government brought a lot of uh, assets to the table. And so they ultimately agreed. And in July of 2007, it opened up as, a, as the 13th presidential okay. library and museum.
1: I think one of the fascinating things for, for and I and I kinda knew it but I didn't really know it sort of right up, up, up front is that there's no federal dollars that go into the creation of these libraries. They have to be the funds need to be raised to build the libraries and create and find the land and all that sort of stuff. Um and then dedicate it back to the government for, for the public's use. Um but what I didn't realize was that there's like a Sixty percent of the cost of the library endowment that also needs to be provided to the federal government. So um, you can understand why it's such a heavy lift. It <laughs> is for any president to raise the money to create a library eventually. Yeah,
0: unfortunately, the the uh, Richard Nixon Library, w- which is different in so many different ways, including the ways I just described, uh, didn't wasn't structured that way. Um, the The federal government brought in an operation and had to build a building on site there to house the 46 million textual records, 500,000 photographs and uh, 5, 3,400 hours of tapes and, and that white house tapes and that type of thing. And so, and the federal government right now, I have about a $10 million a year federal operation because I run the security and the maintenance and I have a staff of about uh, 25, 30 people, that type of thing. So there's a, there's quite a federal nut that goes into Matching up with the Nixon Foundation. The Nixon Foundation, however, uh has a lot of ability to to convene a lot of events and do a lot of things in its own event space. There's some beautiful
1: event space. Beautiful
0: there. event space. And and the federal side of it is it's focused on some public events and we do a lot of public events. We do school tours. We do public events that are free, that type of thing. Uh but we're responsible primarily for serving as the custodian of the records and the artifacts. For the president, the administration, even post-presidential, so uh, the foundation can do a lot of things also um, that uh, kind of uh, get into some partisan politics. If that, for example, just the other evening they presented awards to sec- former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Security advi- National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. Well, the the uh, Nixon Library, the National Archives would never do anything like that because okay. you know they represented. Um, uh, officials of a of a very current administration, that right. type of thing. And we don't get involved in the politics, uh, that type of thing. But the foundation can do that if they want. But fortunately, and it's a little different now that Hugh Hewitt has been the president and CEO because he's, he's as you know, a, very, a conservative uh, talk show host. And so he's tied into a lot of the conservative side of it. But I have to stay center of the road. I have sure. to stay down the middle. Uh, and so it makes for a good partnership, but it makes for actually kind of a uh, a very diverse experience in that facility where you can come in and see all the history of the, of the library and the administration and the life and times of Nixon, 37th president. Uh, but you can also come in and see a Mike Pompeo receive an award and, and, and give a speech uh, on uh, international security matters or things like that. So, so it's quite interesting mm-hmm. uh, the way we're structured is a little bit different. Uh, uh, but you're right. Uh, one of the reasons that, that Obama, uh, that presidential library is actually a, is a presidential center, mm-hmm. and the National Archives is kind of a, a partner in a different building that loans, will loan artifacts and things like that. Is because of the structure is just not tenable for, for many foundations.
1: Yeah, it would be very it seems like the fundraising aspects would be <clears throat> excuse me, really difficult. So one of that that brings up an interesting question. I wonder how much interaction is there between the various so there's the thirteen brick and mortar libraries. Um, is there much interaction? do um, exhibits sort of travel from one to the other or is it pretty much everybody stands alone?
0: That's a great question because uh, I was wondering the same thing when I got in there and uh, we began kind of in a a little bit of a weak manner, uh, some sharing type stuff, but ironically we've become closer since COVID. Okay. And the reason being is that not, not that we were able to share things because we basically got shut down for 18 months, uh, which was a very difficult thing for a library director to, uh, to absorb But we begin getting together on Zoom or Google Meets uh, once every week or once every two weeks. And so you have all of your library colleagues on this screen talking and bantering and sharing uh, stories and and this and that. And so we've become actually quite a bit closer. So so my suggestion uh, to the team is that once we get back to, you know, more normal operations, because of those relationships we've developed, I think we're going to do a lot more sharing than we did before. Even though there was some – now it can get really pretty intense. I okay,
1: think. well, that's good. So, this is going to be a kind of a put you on the spot question. I'm just curious have you had a favorite exhibit or do you have a favorite exhibit that the library has is, is offered?
0: Well, because I served in the Marines during the Vietnam okay. War, uh, I, I really like the way that we uh, begin. We, we, we do We do not walk chronologically through right. Nixon's life. I noticed that. Yeah. yeah, we start out in the 60s, and of course it leads up to the 1968 election, which was fr- razor thin. And and uh, you kind of wonder by the time you get through that first gallery, who would want to be president? Yeah,
1: that's, you know? my wife and I had that conversation walking in, through it. That's exactly in right.
0: In 1968, <laughs> and, and so that's what we wanted. We wanted that effect on people. And so then I call it a ceremonial respite where you turn right and you walk into the Oval Office, and I Mm -hmm. can see him walking into the Oval Office on his first day. You know, oh, this is really cool. I got elected. I've been inaugurated, and now I'm here January 20th, you know, 1969. And this is really cool. Okay, now what? Well, now what is you walk into the next gallery, which is Vietnam. And the first exhibit that you see on the right when you walk in is a safe, a wall safe, that was in the personal residence uh, in the White House. And uh, Johnson, his predecessor, Nixon's predecessor, had placed a troop report from Vietnam. He used to get a daily troop report. And he placed the daily troop report for January 20th, 1969, in that safe. Okay. So that Nixon would see basically a starting point. Okay. And Nixon left that in the safe – until the Paris Peace Accords in 1973 and he used to look at it every day and remind him of what he was facing and what he needed to get through and that type of thing so the Vietnam ex- uh, exhibit uh, becomes one of my favorite and then you move into the POW which was just a remarkable uh, occurrence in, in US history and then uh, ironically uh, right at the end of the POW exhibit is the is a is a a treatment, a small exhibit that treats the last, uh, the last service members of each of the services that were killed in Vietnam before the Paris Peace Accords, and I actually escorted the body of the last oh, Marine wow. killed in Vietnam. Wow! Before the Paris Peace Accords in early February 1973, and so by PFC Miller's uh, name being up there in the library that I direct, it became kind of a full circle thing for me. So, so that takes you through my my favorite.
1: Wow. That's, that's, that's amazing. Um, So transitioning maybe a little bit, um, you talked a little bit about um, having schools and stuff. How much interaction is there between the library and sort of the local community around it?
0: A lot. We, we, one of the things that we do, I think the best is we integrate ourselves into the community. And of course that's changed a bit because uh, in the summer of 2020, uh, the archivist shut down all of our public programming, shut down all of our weekly concerts, shut down all of our school tours where we were on, on track for 15,000 students a year that we would have come in there for school tours. So we have a massive school tour program uh, for all the elementary schools and high schools and even some of the, the Boys and Girls Clubs and the Scouts and things like that. And it's just a very, very rewarding thing. And so it's been really a punch in the gut for us to not be able to do that for so long we still aren't reopening, uh, f- for that yet. Okay. Uh, and then we have alliances with, um, uh, all of the universities, uh, UCI, Concordia, um, and Chapman and, and, uh, Fullerton, all of the universities. And we have relationships with the professors and they come over and do research and they come over and teach and, and, uh, and, and, lecture and things like that. So, uh, we, we integrate, uh, quite, quite a bit.
1: Okay. And you had mentioned, um, the, the President Obama not doing the library and museum, do the more of the presidential center. It kind of struck me when I was reading a little bit about that sort of stuff. Um, I think it would be a loss if we can't find ways to do libraries for future presidents. Um, I think there, I, I was thinking, um, I was talking to my wife last night, we were you know, was doing a little bit of research for this. And I, I said, it kind of reminds me of there's a line in the movie, The Verdict, where Paul Newman talks about the trappings of the court. Um, and it's, I think that going to the physical space um, and seeing an oval office or seeing a helicopter or seeing, you know, the, the piece of the Berlin wall or, or those kinds of things, those are so they're, they're tactile and they're important. So I'm curious what your view is of uh, moving into a more virtual world of, of, of presidential libraries. I'm not sure I'm maybe a function of our age, <laughs> too. Um, but I'm well, not sure I'm all that psyched about that.
0: I just, uh, you know, and I've, I've learned this firsthand. Um, attempting to run a presidential library r- virtually and remotely since March of 2020, um, it is no fun. It's it doesn't uh, meet original objectives um, or, or expectations. Um, and so, I do think that there's an opportunity for a museum without walls. I think there's all sorts of uh, there's all sorts of virtual things we can do. There's educational programming we can do. We can have a Google meets or a zoom with a classroom, which we've done all over the country that we can have those kinds of things. We can share events with the uh, and, and programs with other libraries and all that. But a presidential library and museum is on the library side. It's about being able to come into the research room and we have historians and authors and people come We're the second busiest research room in the system. Uh, Nixon is a very uh, complicated person. A lot of research is done on him. Um, and a lot of research was done on him, uh, during the Trump administration because people were throwing around comparisons and things like this all the time. And so it became a very active place. Then on the museum side, well, you've got the galleries and you just can't replace the galleries. You, even if you have a virtual walkthrough of the galleries, it it just doesn't do the same thing. And so I think that to a degree, the nature and the quality of a virtual library is going to be limited. Uh, and it's going to mm-hmm. be limited by the very essence of what a, a presidential library and museum is all about, which is walking through, as you say, picking up the phone, f- uh, looking at things, reading, p- reading panels, seeing the visual of, of the uh, the real wedding dress that was worn and, 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 and you know, things like that. Right. So, so I, I do think that there's an opportunity for a balance. I don't, I think it'll be a while before we find the right balance. But I do think that the question is a good one because I, I believe that the sustainability of the presidential library system the way we see it right now might be in trouble. And, and the Obama approach uh, is kind of the first shot over the bow that, uh, that uh, you know, and, and I think Trump would probably be the same way. Why would Trump want uh, a presidential library uh, that, that uh, really zeros in and focuses on a, a f- matter of fact, truth telling, uh, as opposed to uh, kind of a, a grandiose approach and, and nothing against him, he's just a showman. Mm-hmm. A- and uh, Obama, in his own way, w- is, is going to be a showman, and so his library is going to show this. His, his library may or may not focus on some of the real stories or the real history. Right. And so we're, we're, if that continues to separate, then they will become presidential centers, and then the presidential library aspect of it will be almost purely uh, research or okay. ar- archival repositories. Yeah,
1: and, and you know, and I on the harp on it, but I, I just know from my visit to the Nixon library, I, you know, there, there's all those sections where you pick up a phone and you listen to the conversations the president had with a, um, you know, I was, it was fun to listen to the ones talking about getting the first pandas from China. Um, talk, I, I forget who the baseball player was. Uh, almost, almost, I want to say Mickey Mantle, but I think I have that wrong. Um, but him talking on you know with the astronauts. It was very tight uh, with Jackie Robinson. Yeah, yeah, but you you were picking up a phone that was a '60s era feeling and looking phone, and it brings you to the moment, right? Yeah, that, that a digital file, audio files, we do a podcast, <laughs> but yeah. it's, what a digital audio file doesn't just doesn't do for you. So, um, I hope that you know if if there's a if there's a migration in one direction that maybe the maybe there's a more of a public focused side of, of the other part of it for, for future presidents. Well, I think it's going to require
0: um, uh, the foundations and the nonprofit sides to buy into a, a more uh, fulfilling treatment of the, of the presidential experience yeah. as opposed to focusing on, you know, because by definition, uh, recent presidents, uh, more of the staff are living and, and, and so they're going to be very sensitive about what's said sure. what's told and all that. And and so the older Presidential libraries, they're not as sensitive to this. Um, even the Nixon Library, you know, the, the the folks are passing away. We just lost Don Rumsfeld very recently. And and so this kind of thing is happening, and pretty soon it's just going to be the story is going to be what the story is. And um, so so it's going to be something that's going to be difficult to manage over time.
1: Sure. So are there exhibits that are coming that uh, to the library that you'd like to let people know about uh, and plug the library a little bit?
0: Well, that's a good question. We just finished a, a, a temporary exhibit that talked about presidential relationships da- dating back. To I saw it too late.
1: I was already. Right. I was like, oh, that one would have been pretty cool. Guess, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, that was really, really well done. And there's a perfect example um, of where uh, <laughs> when that thing opened, um, it was done. Basically, we jointly developed these with the foundation. The foundation. This is a relatively recent model. The foundation funds it entirely with their money. Uh, we, we charge a premium when there's a special exhibit available for, for uh, viewing. And then the foundation will recover its, its money from the premium that's charged until okay. it makes up for its investment, and then we'll go back to the normal split. But what we needed to be careful about is we still can't, just because the foundation is funding it, we got to, still got to be careful about the final script approval, which rests with the National Archives. And so with that particular one, because Trump was still president and uh, Hugh Hewitt had a relationship with the, with the Trump white house and Nixon had a very interesting relationship with Trump back in the day. They wanted to make a big deal out of it. The foundation did. And I couldn't allow for it to be made too big of a deal because Trump was my boss and we didn't. And so they had proposed at one point inside the exhibit, having a Trump cutout so that there were pictures being taken with the current president. And so Basically, all, it was a simple thing to fix, but the, it couldn't be inside my federal space. Got it. But it could be outside in the, in the private space. But a really interesting, uh, the next special exhibit is going to be very interesting because we're going through a lot of 50-year anniversaries uh, of things okay. that the Nixon administration did. Uh, later this year, at the end of this year, we're going to open up a, a very, very interesting exhibit on celebrating the 50th anniversary of the National Cancer Act uh, that was passed in December of 1971. And so um, I I don't know if you you know much about it, but if you you do any research or reading about uh, Nixon's influence on uh, the nationwide health system back in his day, and specifically uh, the war against cancer, it's a very impressive story. And it still has consequences to this day. But he was one of the first guys that, because he had... He lost a couple of younger brothers, uh, okay. you know, From illnesses, and so he all he he was one of the first guys. and This sounds a little bit weird for a Republican president, but he was really not a current day Republican. Uh, he he really uh, wanted people to be able. He didn't want anybody, any family, to go under because they had to absorb medical expenses for sick members of the family. So he wanted to. He wanted to. He didn't want the American family uh, destroyed, uh, for the the odd chance that uh, a medical emergency would visit upon the family. Sure. And so he he's the one that began to talk about, you know, a healthcare model that would uh, take care of people in need and that type of thing. But out of that came the national uh, cancer act in 1971. It really started way back in the sixties when John Wade had cancer Okay. and um, you know, John Wayne, uh, they didn't want, John Wayne's handlers didn't want John Wayne to tell anybody or admit that he had cancer because you don't want any any Hollywood figure, let alone big, big, yeah, bad the Duke, John Wayne. Yeah, the Duke have uh, cancer. To, yeah, uh, you know, vulnerable and that type of thing. And John Wayne himself said, you know, BS, I, I'm, I'm going to go tell people about this so that we, I, can, I can raise the awareness of it. And he had su- surgery and he beat it. And so he goes, that's the story is right. that you can beat it. John Wayne can beat it. And so that began kind of a conversation about how to deal with cancer. So it became more of a, a public voice. And, and uh, ultimately, uh, through uh, Johnson, who, who started things off, and Nixon ultimately in 71. And so there's going to be a 50th anniversary a okay. uh, series of programs and events that uh, you should look for.
1: Okay. And so the library and museum's open now. Um, so the, some of the COVID restrictions have come off.
0: Some of them have come off, but we still, uh, I mean, we're still wrestling with stuff. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, uh, October 18th, uh, the National Archives um, uh, uh, p- pushed for a, a reentry program. In other words, we went from being COVID closure to a reentry program well the reentry program is really pretty much the same unless and until the current uh, metrics improve to the point now once they improve then we're going to be able to go from 25% for example because we're limited to 25% capacity okay uh, our our staff is limited to 25% on staff on site our staff that come on site all have to volunteer so I can't direct anybody to Okay come in. okay and so as of yesterday uh and we're in week two of three, we have to have three consecutive weeks of of appropriate readings in in terms of new cases and positivity rates. Uh, Once those things square up, which I think they're going to do as early as next week, then we can begin uh, moving back toward normalcy. And we're going to be able to increase to 50% and 75% then back to normal operations, reopen the research room, welcome back our docents and things like that. So, Mm Uh, it's been a slow and deliberative process and I, I and I, I wouldn't even begin to want to speak to whether or not it's been done well or not done well, because we really have to follow the office of management and budget. Sure. And so whatever administration policies, and, and of course there's two administrations that right. have saddled this thing. So, so, um, it's been a big fat mess, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we are open to the public and we do have private events and I'm still not open for public events or tours, school tours. Okay. Uh, but uh, we hope to do
1: that before the end of the year. And should public who might want to go, uh, are they, should they reserve in advance? or They
0: should check online. Okay. There's a ticketing process online where you can get yourself reserve tickets. Okay. And, and because we're at a 25% capacity, you know, we just want to make sure people don't just don't show, show up. up. Now, if they do show up... Uh, and and there's a, not a capacity issue, then fine. If there is, then they're just going to have wait. to wait until
1: yeah. Yeah, sort of like a parking garage empties out and fills back in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So. But, but it's pretty not, it's not really noticeable because it's not all that often without events that we're bumping up against that okay. capacity on uh, all through the course of the day.
1: Okay. Well, Michael, I just want to thank you so much for giving us the time and, and being willing to do our podcast. Is there anything else you wanted to, to add about the library that maybe we didn't touch on?
0: Well, uh, as a, as a longtime uh, public servant, municipal uh, administrator guy, I, I really appreciate that uh, the San Marcos uh, city manager has an interest in, in what's going on at our library. And, and you know, uh, we, we are a little bit away. As I, I live up in Fallbrook, so I know exactly it's about 70 miles from drive. Okay. to drive. Okay. Uh, so I know that we're a long ways away, but we are a regional institution. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and, and this is a, it's a, it's a, a nice uh, day trip. Uh, that's very doable, very manageable, and it's it's really since uh, there is only thir- there are only thirteen of these national archives right. libraries um, in, across the country, it's, and we have two of them in California and one of them in Orange County. People ought to take a look. Absolutely, I mean, this is a very interesting story um, and a figure. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, once again, thanks very much for joining us. My Appreciate pleasure. it. Best of luck going forward.
0: Thank you very much, Jack. Appreciate it.
1: I'd like to thank Michael Elsey once again for joining me. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I learned a ton about not just the Lixon library, but the library, uh, the presidential library system um, as a whole. I think it's um, you know the nixon library itself is 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 unique as as Michael described. Um, and it's definitely worth a visit. Um, and um, it's just um, I can't really sort of emphasize enough. it's I, I think people have sort of, you know, maybe some preconceptions of how, um, information may be presented. And I think that if you go to any of these, um, presidential libraries, I think that, um, you'll be happy to see that, um, it's presented in, I think at least my experience on three libraries, um, that I've been to, uh, in a straightforward way, uh, you know, perhaps the Truman library doesn't have, um, the sort of presidential level incidents that occurred, um, with respect to the Reagan Library and the Nixon Library. Um, but actually, I thought that the Truman Library did a really nice job on um, some of the stories um, that swirled around Harry Truman and some of his uh, political benefactors while he was a county commissioner in Missouri, in the Kansas City area. So anyway, um, I think you know the, the libraries do a great job of, of, of presenting information in a way that um, allows you to decide for yourself what you think about it um, and, uh, and they also just contain some, some uh, remarkably cool um, artifacts and exhibits and you know seeing the handwritten notes from Winston Churchill to Harry Truman or from Margaret Thatcher to Ronald Reagan um, that stuff's you know that stuff's priceless right um, so um, it's only an hour and a half up the road um, so um, if you have some time someday you should uh, you should give it a twirl it's a it's a very cool place. Um, So anyway, um, thanks again for listening and um, look forward to furthering the conversation about San Marcos down the road.